Hi guys, Emma here. You're about to listen to one of my favorite episodes. We conducted this episode at the height of the BLM movement, in which I interviewed Emma Burko and Nayanika Batakaria to discuss the issues regarding racial discrimination, both in America and here in Australia. This episode was recorded to bring light to the ongoing issues when it comes to racial discrimination. I hope you enjoy this episode. You're listening to Global Questions by YDS, an apolitical podcast that, as the name suggests, asks the big global questions, delving into topics that matter to you with the experts. From diplomats to academics and students, I'm your host, Emma Fabregat. Today I'm joined by Ama Berko and Nayonika Bhattacharya. When I think of true allyship, I think of just creating change and creating a revolution within. We will be delving into the history behind the Black Lives Matter movement, discussing how to be a good ally, questioning our own systematic racism here in Australia, and providing information on how to look at our own deeper biases. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the different lands on which the guests and I have gathered on, which we work and live, and recognize their continuing connection to land, water, and community. We pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. I first want to say thank you guys both so much for joining me on this podcast and talking about the current events that are going on. I think this is a very important conversation to have. And first, if you could give us a little bit information about yourselves, tell us a bit of your academic and professional backgrounds and your interests. Yeah, well, um, my name is Arma Burko. I am 20 years old and I'm just currently finishing up my last semester at UTS, studying a Bachelor of Communication, where my major is public communication, and I'm minoring in digital and social media. So after uni, I really aspire to get into the tech industry. So that's um, UX strategy, social strategy, and really working within the tech industry and building on diversity and inclusion. For me personally, I grew up not being able to see a lot of people that looked like me and represented me in that industry. So that's something that I'm very passionate about doing in the near future. Um, I think it's really important to note that I speak to my experience. Um, everything I say is, of course, to my own truth as a Ghanaian Australian. I can't speak to all my African Australian peers here. I can't speak to their direct experiences. I can't speak for every black person in the United States, every black person in the UK, every black person across the globe. I think that's a given. However, I want to utilize this platform to amplify our voices, amplify our pain. Hey everyone, my name's Nayanika. Really nice to meet you, Emma, and thank you for doing this, Emma. I think it's really important we have these conversations. As for my academic background, I do a double degree in arts and law with a major in politics and international relations and a minor in psychology. As someone who's grown up in a very third world and second world country context, I think it's really important we have these conversations because when you study this from an academic lens, I think there's still a lot of misconception and there's still a lot of gap in terms of how um, people are represented and what people know about different cultures and lifestyles. And I think that's something that really needs to change through representation and which is why I think conversations like this are important and I'm really interested in going into the um, feminist legal space and working on public litigation um, or women's law or anything to do with family law as well. Thank you guys for that introduction. 
Before we delve into the history of the Black Lives Matter movement and how that relates to our own systematic racism here in Australia, I think it would be great to first discuss proper terminology when referring to the people in question. Um, if you'd like to start. What I would suggest is when referring to people of colour or a person of colour, it's primarily used to refer to non-white racial or ethnic groups that are a visible minority. And then when you move into the terms like African-Americans and Black, people use those terms interchangeably, which are fair. However, the term African-Americans was initially used to refer to those that were descendants of the enslaved. And it can be quite limiting, the term African-Americans for the current population, just because America in itself has diversified in ways that everyone from the diaspora and other parts of the world are a part of that population. So depending on the individual, Black Americans is probably the preferred terminology to use. Okay, thanks for clarifying that, Emma. And Ayonika, what would you suggest as a proper terminology when referring to Indigenous Australians? I mean... I think that that's a very subjective call at the end of the day. Just as Amal was saying, it's it, it's a lot of these terms are used interchangeably, but then we also need to realise a lot of these terms come from a very colonialist perspective. Um, like the other day, I was being informed by a friend who is of Indigenous background that they prefer being called Aboriginal people because that's what they would like to refer to themselves as. Indigenous is a very British terminology given to them. Um, some people don't mind at all, as long as you are not, using it from a place of malice. Terminology at the end of the day is fine, but I think it's always better to check with the groups that you interact with, how would they like to be referred to? Because it's really hard to make that call. And it, it also comes down to the situation where a lot of groups go into the habit of, um, which is a good thing, reclaiming a lot of terms and not minding it being used against them. But again, within those groups, you also have people who are not comfortable with it yet. They've still not made made peace with the harm, like psychological harm that comes with the terminology. And that's very understandable as well. So I think as a bystander, it's always your duty to ensure that you've taken every step within, like in your handbook to make sure that you've acknowledge everyone's state of well-being and you use appropriate terminology. So I think the safest terms obviously would be Indigenous Australians or for, like I find it easier to refer to them as First Nations friends because they are First Nations people, they are true Australians. I think the minute you start using terms like Indigenous and Aboriginal, they both come from a, a very British context and I think it really diminishes their connection to land, water, um, and sees. And I think just using First Nations people just really acknowledges the impact and the connections that they've had and still do. And that way it becomes easier to converse. But again, this is from an outsider. My word should not be gospel truth. Thank you both for that. Now, if we start to discuss the current protests in America against police brutality towards Black Americans, Amma, could you tell us about the history that has led and continues to support these events? Yeah, of course. I think for me, I find that a lot of people always um, question why do we need to talk about slavery? Slavery is of the past. It doesn't exist. It shouldn't correlate to the events that are currently happening right now in America. But I think it's really important to understand that the history of African-American slavery in itself has revealed the ways in which Black bodies continue to be criminalised and brutalised almost. And because of that, that's why we see the... Um, 
events of police brutality and mass incarceration and racial disparity that's so evident. So the claim that slavery is of the past is a very um, dangerous and almost ignorant statement to make because it doesn't necessarily acknowledge how slavery to this day still affects the liberation of African-Americans. So when we look at the history of African-American history, it literally starts from the transatlantic slave trade where um, slaves were taken from West Africa predominantly. And it was in essence a triangular route from, so you had Europe to Africa, to the Americas, and then back to Europe where European merchants, they exported goods to Africa in return for enslaved Africans and resources such as gold, ivory, cocoa, a lot of um, these resources that Africa is now so um, renowned to have. And you had over 12 million men, women and children that were forcibly removed from Africa to the Americas. And you can only imagine the brutality that they faced on the ships where um, many of them would never see land again because of the lack of sanitation, starvation. They were thrown overboard and they were taken to America, sold as slaves to work on these plantations and to be domestic slaves. So you really need to look at slavery and look at how that became or that was essentially the start of a lot of racist ideologies and they all became institutionalised where the Europeans they justified their trade for human beings. And what about the enforcement of black codes? Yeah, so black codes, they at that time, they were laws that were used to regulate um, blacks. So after the Emancipation Proclamation Act in 1863, under the black codes, states were obliged, they obliged black people to sign yearly labour contracts, which were vagrancy laws, um, and that if they were declined, Black people would be risk, they would risk being arrested, fined, forced into unpaid labor. And this basically was the premise that set the black population in America behind. They weren't able to vote, they weren't really um, a part of pr producing the economy at that time. So they lacked basic human rights. So Jim Crow moves into segregation. You had um, segregation laws that were deemed constitutional. And although African-Americans were still allowed a seat at the table, it was a separate table. They were divided. It was at that time where they referred to African-Americans as colored people and they would completely separate them from the white people. And we see this through the public schools, libraries, hospitals, transportation, a lot of the rights that an individual should have had were completely stripped of. They weren't legally allowed to vote in their interests. And if they wanted to vote, they had to pay to vote. And at that time, a lot of them did not have the sufficient funds to vote. So that automatically put them a step back. Um, that was a very insightful background on the roots of ongoing systematic racism, which leads me to ask you about how that has translated into what we know as the Black Lives Matter movement, BLM for short. Could you take us through how it started and what it represents? In 2012, when 17-year-old Trayvon Martin died at the hands of um, George Zimmerman, which was a neighbourhood watch, and claimed that it was self-defence, we saw like a lot of protests. They began to um, transpire across the whole country 
demanding changes from Florida's stand your ground laws to gun control. And the phrase itself, Black Lives Matter, was first coined in 2013 by three African-American women, Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi, and Patrice Cullors, in response to George Zimmerman's um, acquittal. However, like the term itself, Black Lives Matter, didn't actually gain nationwide use until August 9th, 2014. And that was when um, Michael Brown was shot and killed by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. And he claimed, the police officer claimed that um, Michael Brown had fit the description of a suspect in a convenience store theft. So as a result of that, and as a result of his death, protesters began to swarm all around the city of Ferguson and the overwhelming like police response to these protests kept the surveillance of the movement on the news and it's very starkly similar to what we're seeing right now as a result of um George Floyd's death the current wave of protests and although Ferguson began to simmer down or the coverage of Ferguson began to simmer down it was essentially the combination of social media, ubiquitous um, video cameras, and just the reoccurrence of African-American deaths at the hands of police brutality that saw the movement rise. It's important to note that the movement itself, it affirms black humanity in the face of almost senseless killings of unarmed black men and women. This movement has recently come together this year after the brutal murder of George Floyd by white police officers. Could you talk to us about that? From what we've seen, that on May 25th, George Floyd was killed while whilst being arrested, police officer Derek Chauvin. And in that time frame, we had bystanders that were able to capture the video and it showed the white police officer pinning Floyd to the ground whilst he was handcuffed and his knee pressed into the back of Floyd's neck for about eight minutes and 46 seconds, even after Floyd had lost consciousness. And that in itself, it very much brought to light almost grotesque nature of police brutality, which is very much backed up with clear statistics that show that black men are actually killed by police at, a, at an exceedingly higher rate than white men. These protests are so prevalent across the nation and even worldwide because black people like myself, we've gotten to a standpoint where we're tired and we want these numbers to change. We don't want to have to turn on the news every day and see another death until these changes become reformed into policies and the systems the movement is not going to go away. If we talk about then the backlash that we've been seeing as well, for example, the All Lives Matter and the Blue Lives Matter. When we hear the phrases All Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter, it's very glaringly ignorant. From what I recall, Blue Lives Matter um, became about after five police officers in Dallas were shot in response to a national organization. Although the phrase all lives matter is well intended, I get it, every single human's life matters. However, like almost deflects and it diminishes and suppresses our voices. 
our voices are currently challenging the status quo. So when one says all lives matter, you almost put a blanket over the issues that we face. I remember reading an analogy that said, if you live on a street and there's one house burning, right, would you expect the fire service to arrive and like train their hoses on all the houses? No, of course not. Like you would tend to that one house that's currently burning. So it's a deflection from the, the current issue at hand. Do you love Global Questions? We are a new up and coming podcast that is run by young people for young people. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us a lot and it helps us gain the reach that we deserve. Um, and so now I wanted to talk, try and relate this as well back to Australia. You know, we've been very quick to show our support for what's going on in America. But then slowly we started to see more and more social media posts on, okay, but then what are we doing here in Australia? Because there is also systematic racism that we don't acknowledge and and continues to not be uh, acknowledged. And I think that's a very important conversation to have as well. I wanted to, you know, speak as well with Nayonika. I know that, for example, there was the killing of the unarmed prisoner. I hope I'm saying this right, but David Dungy, which was in 2015, which has been something that's been trying to be exposed. Uh, and that was at the Long Bay prison of southeastern Sydney by prison officers, which had little to no media coverage and no charges or investigations were made against the officer. Just based on what Alma said so far, I think this movement has, like, it has been a long time coming as well. Like, there have been systemic instances where that disparity is just obvious. And it's, it's not something that you can just individually vote out or it's not something that you can just write about and discuss. It is something that actually needed an entire system to change. And you have the same problem here in Australia. Like the other day you have the prime minister saying things like slavery never happened in Australia. And small comments and conversations like this really throw you off because a country like Australia has essentially, you know, thrived off of enslaving the First Nations people, treating them differently, treating them as less or the other subaltern category. Um, and I think that's that's really led to a problem where they've never truly had an opportunity to integrate into civil society. And it's it's come to a point where their lives are taken for granted. Um, and even the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody in 1991, since then, you have had numbers revealed in that Royal Commission, but then now it's been 432 deaths since 1991. And I mean, if you look at the bigger picture, I think people really downplay how large a number that is. Um, our First Nations people make up 3% of the population, but then they still account for 80% of the male prison population. The women account for 67% of the, male, uh, the female prison population. And we don't understand that things like, you know, the stolen generation or um, forced removal of children from, from their families um, or forced um, checks and arrests and things like that essentially break families apart. We create a cycle of recidivism where we do not give them opportunities to have a full go at life. And if, even if you do do that, even if you do break that cycle, we do not create enough opportunities for them to understand how things can be done and we don't provide them opportunities because essentially we've always looked at our First Nations people as the others. Um, and when it happened in 2015 in Long Bay, um, 
it was horrifying because it was very similar to what happened to George Floyd where um, David was unwell and he said he couldn't breathe and he was anxious, but then you had five or seven police officers charge in, um, absolutely armed, hold him down, pin him down. And those were the exact words he uttered, that he couldn't breathe. And I think it's just, I, I cannot wrap my head around as to how you could do that to someone who's unarmed, who is in isolation, who's just there, and you do this to him because he's unwell and he's not feeling himself. Um, I think this just highlights a huge issue of, at the end of the day, the police think that they have too many powers, but your duty is to protect people and sometimes even from themselves. Your duty is not to create a new code or to create new laws or to, you know, br use brutal force against people. It does not make any difference that way. It just enforces these structures that come from a lot of racist ideology. This is how it works. Um, and that's been the issue in Australia ever since, that our politicians, our um, local council members, they refuse to acknowledge the Indigenous history that we have. Our First Nations history still struggles to be properly taught in schools. A part I wanted to talk about was optical allyship. Uh, I think that's something that not a lot of people know about. And I was wondering if you guys uh, wanted to speak on it I think Afri a lot of African Australians, like myself, at the moment we're quite tired because we have to go above and beyond to explain ourselves or to just recall um, points of history. So in this moment, we need people to have a lot more empathy, right? So we need we al we also need people to understand how um, detrimental optical allyship is, and to really get to the core of true allyship. Optical allyship, it's more, it's its very much surface level. And we're seeing a lot of companies, a lot of brands limiting themselves to platform the ally, right? So they're really getting into performative activism, which doesn't actually account for being a true allyship beyond social media or beyond the talk. And I remember reading something by Latham Thomas. He coined, he actually coined the um, the phrase true allyship. And he said that um, it's actually about building trust, being consistent, standing up, speaking up, recognizing the struggle and actually like carrying some of that weight. And throughout my life speaking per se, um, in Australia, like many others, Black people, First Nations people and people of colour, we've endured racism in both overt and covert scales. And quite frankly, it does hurt from work environments to school to public places to conversations with our friends that don't even recognise the microaggressions that they're feeding into. It's not new, but it's building up on us per se but we're determined to create spaces for us and by us, but we need the help of um, true allies. When I think of true allyship, I think of just creating change and creating a revolution within that consists of hiring and empowering Black students and First Nations people and supporting Black-owned businesses, diversifying boards and hiring like within upper management. Can we also talk about how we can help the movement, whether in Australia or in America? Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, this like really stems from what Amo was saying very beautifully about optical allyship and in, in a way uh, supporting it as an ally, like you show up, you have those uncomfortable conversations with your friends, with your family. And I, I'm sure it will be isolating. Um, so you have to have those conversations. You donate to organizations um, that exist. You show up to protest when there are protests. You sign petitions. You, At the end of the day, we're also a democracy. You vote in people based on their policies. Um, we are lucky to have education in this country that is accessible um, to a certain degree. And people who have the privilege of having access to education should take the opportunity to read every policy out there and vote in people accordingly. Also one of those things where if you are in a circle and you don't belong to that group, don't speak for the group. Pass them on to someone who belongs to the group and who can speak for them. If you think you are being a good ally, don't give yourself that gold star that I'm a good ally. Let the group let you know that you're a good ally. And always, always, it doesn't matter if you've done this once. It's sort of like consent, you know. It doesn't matter if you've been once. Always ask what the group wants. You show up to a protest and they tell you we don't want too many, not, you know, um, non-First Nations people here. You leave. You donate money. You show up in other ways. You sign petitions. You create, you know, um, observe. You stay there as an observer if they're happy with that, or you create a safe space online. You make your phone numbers available. Um, you leave behind first aid kits. You leave behind welfare packs. You make sure that you check in on them after protests. You call them if they want food. You drop food off, um, and you do small things like that. We actually listen to what the group wants at all times. And the next thing that we need to do is in places like schools, universities, at workplaces, when our First Nations friends are making a stance, when they are making a request to change something, or when they are going out on a limb against a system that is absolutely prejudiced against them, you stand for them. You support them and you back them up. You don't talk the talk for them. You let them talk the talk, but you walk the walk with them. Because the support is always in numbers. Non-First Nations people stand at a benefit of not being as harshly impacted by them going out on a limb. They Obviously, there will be, I'm assuming, some sort of punishment or warning, but the impact will not be the same. The setbacks will not be the same. So if they are going out on a limb, be there for them and support them. Stand against racial practices within companies and institutions like that. I think Nayonika summed it up perfectly in terms of how people can help like alongside donating what you can to organizations sign petitions there are so many petitions out there from Brianna Taylor's petition to um Robert Fuller's petition to Michael Brown's petition so many petitions out there and essentially all you have to do is sign them and you need to be willing to like have these conversations with your friends don't ignore don't ignore what they have to say. Do not be complacent. You really have to check yourself and understand your privilege and how your privilege has very much allowed you to get to spaces that um, Indigenous people and people of colour and Black people have been behind or unable to enter. And also, one thing that I found is that just from talking to a lot of friends, they don't actually follow a lot of, um, not just like organisations, but voices like black voices black advocates black activists so i think it's also supplementing your other types of more active learning 
with sustained passive engagement. So follow these accounts of Black voices, Indigenous voices, people of colour who are at the forefront and actually listen to them, watch them, absorb them. You don't actually realise it, but when you consume content from people that look like you and live like you, that becomes all that you see and you don't really um, hear from the experiences of those that very much disproportionately at, an, at a disadvantage. So there's so much you can contribute to the movement and what you say and what you do in this moment will be remembered as the reflection of the value that you place on human life. We're reaching towards the end of the podcast. I just wanted to ask you guys if there's any more topics you guys want to talk about, something we didn't cover that you feel like should be um, discussed. Um, For me personally, it's just I think we need to stress the importance of saying um, their names. So we need to talk about um, these different incidents that don't gain um, widespread media coverage as much, like Ahmed Arbery. We have Breonna Taylor, 27-year-old, who was shot and killed in her own house by police. You have Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old boy that was killed within seconds by police officers. Sandra Bland, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Robert Fuller that was lynched the other day in um, California. So I think people need to realise these small um, incidents aren't just um, one-off, they're reoccurring. Also, I want every individual that um, is listening to this if you have not heard of Brianna Taylor, I really want you to go on Google, type in Brianna Taylor and say her name. Her name is no longer trending all over social media and the police officers that murdered her in her own home are still free. So please, there are pet- There are specific petitions out there that have been made by her attorneys, by her families. Please sign them. There is information where you can write direct emails with a template on exactly what to write to send to the Louisville mayor and to send to Attorney General Daniel Cameron, who is the 51st Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. There is a plethora of information out there. Please play your part in making difference. We need these officers to be arrested and convicted. Don't be complacent. Um, Stay loud and please contribute to demanding justice. And that leads to as well, I know you added some information about uh, defunding the police. So if you want to talk briefly on that as well, Lama. Yeah, so essentially as a result of all this happening, the driving goal is to uh, defund the police and that just doesn't mean like um, completely not funding the police, but it means taking those funds for police and shifting them into other public programs such as outreach programs, social working and non-police professionals to really help these, um, to really help the black community and instead of just putting them in prison institutions, actually really helping them. Because in a lot of the cases, a lot of these individuals have mental health issues, health issues that are um, overlooked. And it's really getting into into the core of that than just subjecting them to violence. If somebody is listening and they want to learn or get in contact with you guys, um, where can they find you? Where can they contact you? They can reach me, my Instagram. I usually, I'm more often on my Instagram than I am on my Facebook. They can reach me at Armand Burko. So that's just at 
Ama Burko, B-E-R-K-O-H, as well as my Facebook. Yeah, um, they can reach me on Facebook. I'm barely on Instagram, but yes, my Facebook is Nayonika Padacharya. I'll spell that for you. Um, N-A-Y-O-N-I-K-A, um, B-H-A-T-T-A-C-H-A-R-Y-A. I'm bad at responding on time, so if I don't, it's me thing it's not a you thing I'm sorry about that I just wanted to say thank you guys so much for joining me uh, on this podcast and sharing your information and just having this conversation I think hopefully everybody listening can take something from this conversation Uh, I hope it's been insightful yeah I I thank you I appreciate it um both Emma and Nayonika for just being here and allowing us to have this um platform and talk about this issue I think it's great for us to have these forums especially in times like this just so not only to inform but to really um talk about our own personal experiences absolutely likewise it's really an honor to share the platform with both of you if we've sparked your interest or you want to hear more about a certain topic contact us through our social media, website or links in the description. This is Global Questions and thanks for listening.